Hello and welcome to Hard Money. I'm Natalie Brunel. While we ended August and began September with markets seemingly in panic, awaiting more rate hikes from the Fed this month, and the economy continuing to decelerate despite no official admission from our administration that we are in a recession. Investors are hoping for a longer-lasting rally in September after that brutal end to August. Bitcoin suffered its worst August price since 2015, dropping about 15%. And unfortunately, it could keep dropping in the fall. Historically, September hasn't been kind of Bitcoin's price, on average dropping about 6%. Bitcoin's poor track record in September also correlates with stocks. Over the past 25 years, the S&P 500 has traditionally dropped about 1% this month. Analysts call it the September effect. There's no real reason why this month has been bad other than market psychology. Some market watchers speculate that investors exit their positions after returning from summer vacations to either lock in gains or book a tax loss. And while September could bring another dip, there is some optimism. October has historically been one of Bitcoin's best months for price gains. One of the reasons for August's steep price drop was hawkish talk from Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. Speaking last week at the Jackson Hole Symposium, Powell made it clear that the Fed will not pivot and will continue to raise interest rates, quote, until the job is done in hopes of getting inflation closer to 2%. It's currently at 8.5%. The Fed is expected to raise rates again in its September meeting, but before then, we'll get another CPI release and jobs report. Those factors should play a role in deciding how much of a rate hike we see, but most analysts expect between 50 and 75 basis points. In response to all this, the yield on the two-year treasury has been soaring, reaching its highest level since 2007. Meanwhile, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, Neil Kashkari, offered this stunning rebuke to the idea of a central bank digital currency. Speaking at an event for Columbia University, Kashkari said a CBDC doesn't solve any problems and would have no use case in America. Listen. I keep asking anybody, anybody at the Fed or outside of the Fed to explain to me what problem this is solving. A digital, I can send anybody in this room $5 with Venmo right now. <laughs> Right? No, seriously. So what is it that a CBDC could do that Venmo can't do? And all I get is a bunch of hand-waving. I get a bunch, well, maybe it's better for financial inclusion. Maybe it's better for cross-border remittances. Maybe. Is there any evidence that it is? And you know, they say, well, what about China? China's doing it. Well, I can see why China would do it. If they want to monitor every one of your transactions, you could do that with the central bank digital currency. You can't do that with Venmo. If you want to impose negative interest rates, you could do that with the central bank digital currency. You can't do that with Venmo. And if you want to directly tax customer accounts, you could do that with the central bank digital currency. You can't do that with Venmo. So I get why China would be interested. Why would the American people be for that? Earlier this year, the Federal Reserve issued a report on the possibility of creating a central bank digital currency, or FedCoin. Many Bitcoiners have raised strong concerns about CBDCs and their programmable functions, including making money from the government have an expiration date, as well as the draconian social credit system created in China, which is currently testing a CBDC. Bitcoin, on the other hand, represents freedom money. Last week, President Joe Biden announced a student loan forgiveness plan. It would forgive up to $20,000 in federal student debt, depending on the loan. This has created a firestorm of reaction from those supporting it amid the rising cost of living and education to those proclaiming it incentivizes more debt and even higher education costs and is unfair to people who already paid their loans off. Whatever your opinion is, this is going to have a huge economic impact if approved. The Biden administration estimates it will cost $240 billion over the next 10 years to pay for it, but most experts think it will cost closer to $330 billion. So how are we going to pay for it? 
The White House has not mentioned any spending cuts, so it's likely the government will foot the bill by printing money, of course, resulting in, you guessed it, even more inflation of the money supply. One of the biggest criticisms of the student loan forgiveness plan, though, is that it's not solving the root problem, which is the high cost of college tuition. The cost of attending college in the U.S. has skyrocketed over the past 50 years. Get this, the average cost of going to a private university, including tuition, fees, books, and room and board, went from $2,900 a year in 1971 to almost $52,000 a year in 2021. The price tag for public college has also surged, going from $1,400 a year in the 1970s to $22,000 for in-state students and $39,000 for out-of-state students in 2021. So why has the rising cost of college outpaced inflation? Well, studies suggest institutions are able to hike costs due to the federal government's willingness to hand out loans and because they serve as lender of last resort when they can't be repaid. A report from the New York Federal Reserve Bank in 2017 found that access to student loan credit had a direct relation to tuition prices increasing by 60%. Many experts critical of the forgiveness plan argue the same result will likely happen again. The high cost of higher education has many students actually opting out. Since 2012, college enrollment has declined every year. And in 2020, it had its biggest single-year drop in enrollment. However, most experts attribute that more to the pandemic than affordability. Once again, we want to spotlight the growing energy crisis, especially in Europe, where things are going from bad to worse. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, gas and electricity prices have soared for much of the continent. The price of electricity in France, for example, is now 1,075 euros per megawatt hour. For comparison, between 2010 and 2020, the average price was just 45 euros. That's a 24 times increase. For more perspective, if prices reach that high in America, it would cost about $100 to fully charge a Tesla. In Germany, power costs also broke through the 1,000 euro per megawatt hour for the first time as the energy crisis intensifies. And in London, the energy prices have people taking to the streets, protests breaking out. And in Austria, it's being widely reported that their biggest energy provider, Wien Energy, is insolvent and would need 1.7 billion euros to remain liquid. To try to bring down prices, the head of the European Union pledged to reform Europe's electricity market to develop an emergency intervention, but no specifics were given. All right, let's take a look at some headlines focused on Bitcoin. It appears Texas is becoming a victim of its own success in terms of Bitcoin mining. Miners have been flocking to Texas in the past couple of years due to the pro-Bitcoin regulations and energy supply, but recently there's been a shift. The state's grid operator has slowed down on issuing new permits for miners to connect to the grid as officials there are trying to balance the state's demand and supply of electricity. Meanwhile, the pipeline of available electricity in Texas has run dry and mining companies are working to build out energy infrastructure, such as generators and power lines for their machines to plug into. This couldn't come at a worse time, of course. Miners have been struggling as the price of Bitcoin plummeted over the summer, reducing profits and forcing some miners to sell their coins to cover expenses. There's growing concern that a huge amount of Bitcoin is about to move onto exchanges to be sold as the Mt. Gox settlement approaches. However, some of the creditors involved in the case are painting a different picture. In a Twitter thread, Eric Wall claims to be a Mt. Gox creditor, and despite rumors on Twitter about 137,000 Bitcoin approaching imminent sale, he says that's simply not true. Wall said that people have not been able to register their wallets, haven't picked out how they're getting paid, either fiat, Bitcoin, or Bitcoin Cash, and the payments will come in installments, not 
not all at once. Wall also said that given the current price of Bitcoin, it makes much more sense to hold than sell. Still, there are many concerns that Mt. Gox Bitcoins will be sold off due to the massive gains since the exchange went under in 2014 when Bitcoin cost under $500 a coin. In other news, a bank based in Missouri is now offering its customers the ability to buy, sell, and hold Bitcoin. Sullivan Bank has been around since the 1800s and announced a partnership with Backed Holdings. Sullivan customers will now have the option to add a crypto account next to their checking and savings. Sullivan says the deal helps bring them into the digital age, and Backed said the partnership is an important step for Bitcoin adoption and bridging the gap between traditional finance and digital assets. And finally, here's my favorite Bitcoin story of the week. During an impromptu appearance at BitBlock Boom in Austin, Texas, Ross Stevens made a surprise announcement. This is an accelerator focused exclusively on Lightning. Anything and everything built on or around Lightning. Stevens is the CEO of Stone Ridge Holdings Group and executive director of NYDIG, the New York Digital Investments Group, and is launching the Lightning Accelerator project, Wolf. Ross said the development of the Lightning Network has been remarkable in the past year. The accelerator is geared toward individual founders and small teams, developers working on Lightning, Tarot, and Covenants, and pre-seed, seed, and Series A companies. Wolf right now is looking for applicants from around the world. Transportation and lodging in Manhattan will be provided to participants, and they will work in teams of 8 to 12 with dedicated mentors and receive seed money as well as access to investor capital. The project goes by the full name In Wolf's Clothing as a reference to the phrase wolf in sheep's clothing, but this is wolf in wolf's clothing, and it's aimed at the mission to help ensure Bitcoin is for billions, not billionaires. If you're watching this and want to apply, email apply at wolfnyc.com. All right, that's it for your headlines. Coming up, we speak with Caitlin Long, founder and CEO of Custodia Bank, about what's happening in the economy and the, quote, financialization of Bitcoin. Don't go away. Welcome back to Hard Money. Joining me now is Caitlin Long, Bitcoiner of 10 years, Wall Streeter of 22 years, and CEO of Custodia Bank for the last two and a half years. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back. Thank you. Well, Caitlin, we started the week with a lot of panic in the markets, Bitcoin dipping below $20,000, but the macro picture looks even uglier to me. Give us your 30,000 foot view of what you're seeing, or what does it look like from the top of the Tetons over there? <laughs> well, it definitely uh, looks uncertain. Uh, after Chairman Powell's speech in my home state of Wyoming last week, uh, and Europe is really ground zero for all of that. The spike in electricity prices, 25% in one day, 50% in one week, that is staggering. And it's going to be rippling through the entire economy of the world. 
And uh, boy, do I have a lot of fear of, as to the impact of that on Europe uh, in the upcoming winter, for sure. Well, here in the U.S., we're seeing so many indicators of recession. Home sales are falling off a cliff. And meanwhile, the Fed keeps gobbling up mortgage-backed securities. I mean, they haven't really even stepped up QT yet, right? So how do you see this playing out? Well, I always watch liquidity in the euro dollar market because that's the canary in the proverbial coal mine in financial services. And there are all kinds of warning signs that we are in the fifth so-called euro dollar event uh, since the 2008 financial crisis. And that does suggest that we're in for a choppy fall in financial markets. Now, that said, I don't make forecasts. And I, I look at Bitcoin, which has, of course, increased its correlation with risk assets in the last few years, as all the Wall Street hedge funds came in and started trading it like a financial asset, it will not always trade that way. And it will go back to what it was and the way it traded before it became financialized. And I do believe that uh, if, you, if you put yourselves in the, in the shoes of someone in Europe whose inflation rate just spiked because of the energy cost, the cost to heat homes and, and buy gas, or petrol, as it may be called, uh, in the in those countries, uh, it, it, it's pretty clear that Bitcoin is outperforming spectacularly relative to their own home currency. Uh, it's just that a lot of of the discussion of the value of Bitcoin tends to be against the U.S. dollar, and mm -hmm. uh, that's where it hasn't moved much since the the big correction. Uh, and it does seem to be holding in there relatively well. But as you and I've talked about before, price is the least interesting aspect of Bitcoin in my mind. That's right. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Well, Caitlin, with all, all your experience on Wall Street, you know, many analysts, especially Bitcoiners, have said that the result of, you know, the over financialization of the economy for decades is why we have these debt bubbles, you know, propped up by easy money. Can you simplify what the financialization of the economy really means for someone that has no financial investing background? Well, it means that the denominator of every price is is floating. And it's, and it's actually going down. So if you think back to your eighth grade algebra, uh, think about a, a, a fraction as the denominator goes down, the value of that fraction goes up and vice versa. And so what's happening is as the dollar's value is going down, your purchasing power is being reduced. They're making more dollars and it's not turning into a, as stable a, a store of value as it used to be. We've seen it when, in the consumer price inflation rate uh, and of course, in producer prices as well. Well, bear markets are great for building. And I know you've been working on building your bank and helping make sure policymakers and also institutions understand Bitcoin. So I wanted to ask you, what are you most excited about during this time? What makes you really bullish on Bitcoin right now? Well, this is when the real building gets done. And I am so bullish on the layer two um, levels that are being built right now to scale Bitcoin, in particular, the Lightning Network. It's still early days. But Bitcoin itself has turned into what all monetary systems that became true money became, which is the base money, and then it scales with layered money. So if you studied economics, you might think about M0 as the base money that's issued by the Federal Reserve, and then M1, M2, M3 are issued by financial institutions in the private sector and, uh, and multiplied, their so-called money multiplier. And the same thing is evolving in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is becoming the base money, which is the high value transfer system. You don't buy a cup of coffee with it. 
but you build a scaling layer on top of it, which is the Lightning Network, and you do buy a cup of coffee with Lightning. And I just saw today there was a story about a Lightning transaction and invoice being sent for a small value over ham radio. I've seen Bitcoin transactions done over ham radio before. It's all part of the engineers working on the resiliency of this network, that if the internet ever really did go down, you'd still see there are nodes running on Bitcoin on satellites, rather. Uh, and now uh, there's uh, ham radio. It's certainly not as fast as a typical internet transaction, but it's, uh, it's the way the engineers have been thinking about resiliency for Bitcoin. And all of that really matters. That's part of the reason why I do believe it will retain its value in extreme situations. That's a great point. I know a lot of people are excited about the Lightning Accelerator from Ross Stevens that was announced last week as well. Um, a couple of last things, Caitlin. I know you've been in talks about the financialization of Bitcoin. You know, the idea of whether a system of credit will actually exist on the Bitcoin standard has been debated. But I believe you said that the borrowing cost of Bitcoin would be astronomical because true value of holding the asset with zero default risk would be massively high. Can you kind of explain what that means and break that down? Well, the Wall Street financialization games that the hedge funds brought to this industry beginning in 2017 aren't going to survive. They've definitely kicked around the secondary market price of Bitcoin. By the way, I don't really care that much about that per se, because the underlying base protocol doesn't care about its secondary market. But uh, what's what it ultimately means, it, very simply, is that Bitcoin and leverage don't mix, period, ever. Anyone who leverages Bitcoin is at risk of losing it. And it may not be possible to buy it back if you do lose it. And so those that are searching for yield on Bitcoin are taking what we've learned through the May-June timeframe in, in, in 2022 is if you're searching for yield on Bitcoin, the counterparty risk that you're taking on might be far greater than the yield that you're earning. And it's just not worth it. And the reason is because there's no lender of last resort for Bitcoin. So unlike with other financial assets, there's a clearinghouse or there's a central bank or there's somebody to do a bailout in the event that your counterparty fails. But in, in Bitcoin, there's not. And I think that's a feature, not a flaw. Yeah, absolutely. Well, anything else that you want us to know that you're maybe monitoring with the price drop recently this week? I know a lot of people have been worried that a bigger crash is coming. What else do you want us to know, Caitlin? I don't know if a bigger crash is coming or not. All I'll say is uh, this is my third crypto winter and I survived the first one without, you know, with, with underwater Bitcoin for a couple of years there. And uh, it's not comfortable, especially if you've put a lot of money into it. But what I've learned is that Bitcoin goes through very clear four-year cycles. And there's a good reason for that because the inflation rate of Bitcoin is cut in half every four years. And it, it does trade like a commodity. And there, the, the stock to flow ratio of Bitcoin is, is very high. There's very little of it produced every year. And that means its inflation rate is so low. And as a result of that, uh, just, just holding on to your Bitcoin, generally speaking, over time, you're going to come out ahead. And so I would encourage folks in the, in the bear market, in the crypto winter, to spend time teaching yourself there's no better investment than in your own learning and your own understanding of how Bitcoin works. And that will help get you through tough times, especially if you are sitting with losses underwater. I've been there. Uh, I, I, I'm not afraid to say I lost money in the Mt. Gox collapse. So I had to learn the lesson the hard way of, of knowing that um, your counterparties might not be as secure as you think they are and teaching yourself how to self-custody your Bitcoin is, is one of the best investments that you can make in yourself and in your Bitcoin and in your financial future. 
Wow, such great messages. That's right, you have a key in your Twitter handle. Caitlin Long, founder and CEO of Custodia Bank, thank you so much for joining us. And coming up on Hard Money, we have a special report on why Austin is becoming a capital for Bitcoin. Don't go away. Oh, hi, I'm Max Patrick. And this, of course, is Plucky. I got a new job. I'm now Plucky's trainer. We're doing some of these uh, sit-ups here. He wants to get as strong as possible for the fiat money apocalypse. That's right, Max. We're both heading into the fiat money apocalypse and I'm stacking sets over Swan Bitcoin. Oh, that's so smart, Plucky. How did you get so smart? Get the Swan app. Everything is bigger in Texas, right? Including its enthusiasm for Bitcoin, from mining companies helping to stabilize the grid to cities becoming major hubs for Bitcoin companies and events. We came to Austin to learn more. In Austin, Texas, it's starting to feel like every day is Bitcoin day, from weekly meetups and informal gatherings. So I'm, I'm just so grateful that all of you have come out here. To special events and major industry conferences like BitBlock Boom. Even during crypto winter, Austin's Bitcoin scene is feeling beyond bullish. Tell me, why is this a great place to be sort of a capital for Bitcoin? It's a tech center, first and foremost, in a state that uh, is business friendly and has low taxes. It's pretty much as simple as that. Parker Lewis of Unchained Capital, headquartered in Austin, makes the case for why so many Bitcoin businesses are migrating to the Lone Star State. It's a gravity point. Uh, there's nothing that anybody can do about it. The, the combination of Texas and Austin as a tech center, and then the formation of the, the development hub here, that when people survey the entire world, it's like a force as strong as gravity. And this gravitational pull coupled with a rich energy supply has propelled Texas to becoming one of our nation's largest sources of network hash power, consistently ranking among the top five states for Bitcoin mining. Texas Bitcoiners say the deep connections to energy infrastructure, plus a friendly attitude and entrepreneurial spirit are attracting residents and businesses from all over the world. Texas, first of all, is like such a friendly place. It's, it's not really in the center of political power, and I think that's, that's a good thing. The energy industry is huge here, and Austin has a significant history of engineering. Texas is doing a good job in maintaining civil liberties and freedom and that ethos, which aligns perfectly well with Bitcoin. Marty Bent, founder of the TFTC podcast covering all things Bitcoin, explains what attracted him to move here. Uh, you're finding people who were in different parts of the country. I was in New York and not very happy with the way um, that state was moving. And then there's a lot of intellectual capital down here. That there are a lot of developers that are working on the core protocol, working on Lightning, building businesses. It seems like Austin's becoming a, a good hub to start a, a business. A good place to start a business and a great place to host a Bitcoin-only conference. Just ask Gary and Kathy Leland. And I wanted to meet people in the Bitcoin world, so I started a Bitcoin conference. Gary, aka Bitcoin Boomer on Twitter, said he and his wife left their jobs to work on BitBlock Boom full-time, year-round. Austin is considered, in Gary's mind, uh, kind of like Miami, a Bitcoin capital. We get 
much better response right here. And the numbers of attendees show it this year. We've nearly doubled from last year. Bit block boom. Say it go. three times real fast. It's yeah, really hard to say. It may be hard to say, but it's not really hard to see why Bitcoiners looking for greener pastures are hanging their hats in Texas. It is the Bitcoin capital of the world. If you want to be around Bitcoiners, if you want to live in a state that loves freedom, it is Austin, Texas. There are no other options. Thank you so much to the BitBlock Boom team for having us in Austin, and thank you so much for watching this week's edition of Hard Money. Our goal is to give you the latest headlines impacting Bitcoin and the global economy while bringing you original interviews straight from the biggest names in the space. I'm Natalie Brunel, and I'll see you next week.